Good morning. And just so it's clear, uh, I was the one that uh, forgot the laptop. So it wasn't Noah or Ron. Thank you, Noah and Ron, for making that work. Uh, I just wanted everybody to really appreciate Kyle when he's gone. Uh, you know, what happens when he's not here. Uh, it's wonderful to, to come before God's word once again. Uh, today, we'll, again, we'll be in Judges chapter 8. We'll continue to work through that. I did want us to see this in, in Hebrews uh, here. The author of Hebrews uh, is writing to a, a, a group of followers of Christ who are tempted to shrink back. Uh, persecution had increased in their context, and they're, they're getting nervous about that, and they're pulling back. And they're, um, He is trying to get them to move forward as a way to say, e- even if you die, so be it. Trusting in Christ is right. We serve we serve the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. And so throughout the book, he, he puts things up and says, yes, Moses was great, but Jesus is better. The Old Testament sacrifices were great, but Jesus is the better sacrifices. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the high priest of the Old Testament was great, but Jesus is the better high priest. The Old Covenant was good, but Jesus ushered in a, a better covenant. Uh, and so he goes throughout this like that throughout the book, and then he gets to ch- chapter 11, and he points back to the saints of old, as another way of stirring up the church and saying, look at the faith of the saints before, who endured such hostilities and yet remained faithful to God. And let that cloud of witnesses stir us up to trust God, because he can be trusted. And right in the middle of that, uh, we see our friend Gideon, who we've been working through in the book of Judges, as, as one who is meant to stir our faith, as one who trusted in God, in the promises of God. And you might wonder, you know, how was Gideon? Like, how does Gideon get himself in there? Now, I, I do suppose, like, so far that we've covered in Gideon, uh, chapter 6 and 7, the line to connect that is, it might, might be a little fuzzy, but it's still clear. Because if you think about how we thought about Gideon, or how you might characterize him uh, in the first two chapters that we, of his narrative in Judges 6 and 7, you might say that he's a man of struggling faith. Uh, he, he definitely struggled. We saw that. Had, three times he asked God for a sign. He wants, he wants proof of God's word. Demonstrate to me that you truly will uh, be with me. So he's always wanting a sign, wanting more evidence. Uh, and nonetheless, he has faith. And despite the fact that the Midianite army that's coming against Israel is massive, uh, he still does what God asks him to do. He tears down that altar of Baal that his dad had and the, the Asherah. Even though he's scared, we're told, he does it at night, but he still does it. He still rallies the troops to fight against Midian because he trusts God. Uh, and even when God whittles down his army next to nothing, uh, as we saw last week, he still nonetheless moves forward. We're told he was afraid. That's why he went and sought that final sign. But nonetheless, he went forward. So he's a man of struggling faith. And we also, if you go back to Judges, uh, if you're back there already, uh, we actually ca- catch a little bit of hints of his, his pride in there as, as well. He doesn't, the author doesn't hit on that too strong there, but we get a little bit of hint in chapter 7, verse 18, if you remember that part where, uh, where Gideon has the battle plan. And when he comes back to the troops, it says, okay, this is what we're going to do. I want you to, you, you take your jar, you smash the jar, you blow your trumpet, and, and then wave your torch. That's our battle plan. And when, when you, then you're supposed to shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. 
And that should take us off guard a little bit, like, wait, what? It would be like a little bit like putting on our banner to make maturing followers of Jesus by the power of the gospel through Dan's help. Should we, should we put that on the banner? No, and Gideon, it's like, what are you doing there, Gideon? Like, no, it's just simply for the Lord. So he just hints at it. Uh, when we get into this next chapter, we're going to see that, oh, Gideon is a much more complicated man than, than we're first, we first see in chapters 6 and 7. And so then it begins to be a little bit harder. Like, how, how did he land in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the Faith Hall of Fame guys that's there, a trophy with his name on it? But I trust it, it's good for us to see it because I do find that chapter 8 of Judges can actually be quite encouraging. Uh, one other thing, as by way of review, if we think about how God has been portrayed in chapters 6 and 7, uh, what's really been highlighted has been God's mercy, if you remember, within, in the face of Gideon continuing to prove it to me, God, prove it, God just gently continues to, to walk with Gideon. And even in the, uh, chapter 7, uh, he actually comes to Gideon and seemingly recognizes, knows that Gideon's afraid, and he says, Gideon, if you're, if you're still afraid, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the Midianite army, and there you'll hear another sign. So, so God knows that he's but dust and that he needs help, and God has gently come as a good shepherd to care for uh, Gideon. And obviously God's power then is uh, incredibly on display in chapter 7. But here we are, we ended chapter 7. I remember the Midianite army, 135,000 strong. Gideon's army was whittled down to 300. It was one man to 450 for every one man in Gideon's army. So massively outnumbered. And nonetheless, when they shout the trumpet or blow the trumpets, shout for the Lord and for Gideon, they're thrown into disarray by the hand of the Lord and they start killing each other. Now, at the end of chapter 7, Midianite, uh, the Midianite army is on the run, and that's where we'll pick it up, and we'll walk uh, through the story. We actually have seven scenes that go through chapter eight. It's kind of rapid movement, and we'll walk through each one of them, just uh, give a little bit of commentary. Uh, so let's get started. We're, we'll start at the end of 20, uh, chapter seven, verse 24, actually. Uh, there we see Gideon, uh, verse 24, chapter seven. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as, as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And so all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeeb they killed at the winepress of Zeeb. They pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeeb to Gideon across the Jordan. All right, so that's where we ended last week. If you can try to picture it, you have uh, the Sea of Galilee up here, then you have the Jordan River, and then the Dead Sea. All this area here is Israel. The battle is going on more up in the north, and the Midianite army needs to escape. They're trying to escape to their land, so they're going to come down and escape across the Jordan and get into their land here, right? Now, Gideon has some troops who are from the north, and he knows the Midianite army has to come down. They have to find a spot on the Jordan River where they can cross, where the Jordan's a little bit more shallow, a little bit more narrow. There's certain place, places like this, like a ford, that they can cross, right? So he knows they're going to come running down towards the river, so he calls up Ephraim, who's down farther in the south, to cut them off. 
And so he rallied, rallies troops from Ephraim saying, hey, cut them off at the Jordan so that they can't cross over. And of course, they do. And they catch two of the princes, uh, you know, king's sons, and they cut off the head, right? So they, at the end of the passage, here they come with the head of Oreb and the head of Zeb to Gideon. All right? So 8-1 then, uh, the men of Ephraim come to Gideon, and they say to him, what is this that you've done to us to not call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So this is somewhat interesting here. The, the Ephraimites are sort of like, dude, come on, there was a big fight. Why didn't you call us? We want to be a part of it. And they're upset, right? Uh, mostly, we, I mean, we don't know why they're uh, so upset, but that line in there, verse, at, at the end of verse 1, they accused him fiercely. You know, I, I don't want to, you know, I can't psychologize or what, you know, whatever you would call it, uh, getting here. But personally, if that was me, I'd be quite frustrated at that point. Be like, you, you guys, for the last seven years, the Midianites have come into the land, you've done nothing. All of a sudden, because I've done something, you demand it be done the way you want it to be done, and so that you can have more of the spoil? And I might find it frustrating, because it'd be like, look, even if I did call you, my army was whittled down to 300, not by my choice. I'm simply doing what God called me to do. Get off my back. Like, stop accusing me. Uh, if you've ever tried to jump in and help and help people work through things, then all of a sudden you're the one being attacked. That's what's going on here. It's like, I'm just trying to help. I didn't, I'm not even the one that had this plan. I was just threshing grain. The angel of the Lord showed up and told me I had to go. And he's accused fiercely. So I, I can understand uh, something going on in Gideon's heart, but what we see here uh, is the way he responds. Actually, he responds very wisely. Very much in the Proverbs 15.1 sort of way. A soft answer turns away wrath, right? And a harsh word stirs up strife. He, he comes back with a soft answer, basically trying to demonstrate, like, hey, you Ephraimites, you, you guys did well, man. I mean, look at the spoil you got. Like, you, you got more spoil than I did. You actually captured the, the, the princes, Oreb and Zeb. Like, that's really good. That, that's much more than I got. That's much more than I've done. You're actually so much better than me. And that calmed them down, and that averted a major conflict here. All right, so, so now Gideon is ready to keep going forward, uh, verse 4, because he's chasing after the rest of the Midianites. Verse 4, and Gideon, he came to the Jordan. He crossed over, him and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. Because at this point, they've probably gone 25, 30 miles, maybe up to 40 miles from where they were at. Uh, verse 5, so he said to the men of Sukkoth, which is an Israelite city, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zamuna, the kings of Midian. The officials of Sukkoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zamuna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, 
Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel, another Israelite city, and he spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Penuel answered as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. And we'll pause there. Um, so this, this is another uh, interesting uh, scene here. Obviously, he, Gideon is tired with his, with his army. They're just looking for bread. So they stop in an Israelite town, thinking here we can find some help. But understandably, if you try to get in the mind of the men of Sukkoth and the men of Penuel, they're much closer to where the Midianite land is. They're, you know, they, 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 run in, they have, probably have run-ins with them, regular conflict with them. They've also probably uh, caught word that the Midianites have come running past the town, right? Because this was on the escape route for the Midianites. So, you know, somebody doing a lookout would have come back into town and saying, look, I saw maybe 10,000, 20,000, 15,000, something like that, Midianites all running back home. And then eventually, here comes Gideon with 300 men, and they're saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to take out the Midianites. Now, if you're Sukkoth or Penuel, you can understand them a little bit, being a little bit nervous. Like, okay, if we, if we help Gideon right now, and he, he doesn't actually win, we're in big trouble. Like, Midianites are going to come after us. Now, remember, this is not during the time of Facebook, social media. They have no idea what happened uh, up north. So they don't know. They're just, they just got to take Gideon's word for it. Now, nonetheless, they should have helped Gideon, but they're a little bit weak of faith right now. They're, we, we might call them struggling of faith, right, as Gideon was. And so they, they shrink back and they, like, wh- where are the men? If you don't have them, we're not, we're not going to help you. And so Gideon, uh, looks like he might be a little bit of, have a little bit of hangry going on, you know. <laughs> He's not going to have that. And he, he, he uh, threatens them. There in verse 7, I, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. You, you know what flailing flesh is, right? It's, it's some, some form of peeling the flesh back. Now, some translations have this as like whipping. or Either way, it's, it's a gruesome picture of you're going to be losing some flesh. When I come back, man, you, some of your flesh is going to be off your body. I mean, that's intense. And then, of course, the breaking down the tower. The tower would have been the place of protection. This would have been where people like go to, uh, to, to preserve themselves. And he says, I'm going to break that down. You're going to be in there, and I'm going to tear it down. Interesting that the ESV translates that, when I come in, when I come in peace, I'll kill you. <laughs> it's probably better translated like, when I come in victory, or the peace of the land, there's no more war idea. Not that I'm coming in peace. Um, nonetheless, okay, so here, here we have... Uh, as you're reading this, I think you're, you, there's something going on inside as the reader is saying, okay, I, I get it from getting inside, though, as well. Again, he's, he's trying to help Israel, and he's calling upon some Israelites to help him right now, just with food, not even take up arms, not even go do something. Just give us some food, and they refuse to help. That would be incredibly frustrating, yeah? And so you can, you can get 
a little bit of where his heart's at. And nonetheless, as the reader, I think you, we would be hoping that he cools down, you know, at, just give him a day, get him some food, and he'll, he'll be okay. Right? He'll, he'll, he'll extend some mercy to his fellow Israelite who are, who are struggling in faith. But verse 10, uh, we go on. Uh, he, he continues on his chase. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jagbaha, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zamuna fled, and he pursued them, and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zamuna, and he threw all the army into a panic. All right, so here, here the army is, uh, which is actually still quite large, 15,000 people, still against 300. We still have a major uh, gap, uh, but they feel secure in verse 11. So they found a place of security. They feel safe from Gideon. Uh, and what does Gideon do? But he actually is, is clever. He's wise. He sneaks around these other cities and attacks them, throws them into disarray, and captures the two kings. Uh, and then we go back to uh, the cities of Sukkoth and Penuel in verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man of Sukkoth, and he questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him all the officials and the elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth, and he said to them, Behold, here they are, Ziba and Zamuna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zamuna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. In other words, he flailed their flesh. And he went, verse 17, and broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Evidently, he didn't cool down uh, after the battle. And we continue on, verse 18. Uh, Gideon now turns to Ziba and Zamuna. Where are the men whom you have killed at Tabor? They answered Gideon, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jethro, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword because he was afraid, because he was still a young man. And then Ziba and Zamuna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as a man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zamuna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. And now those kings are taken care of. Evidently, the men he's talking about, when he asks where are the men who you killed at Tabor in verse 18, uh, that's near uh, Gideon's home. So when he says that those men that you killed were actually my physical brothers, they were the, the, the sons of my mother, and if you would have spared their lives, I would spare your lives right now. But since you didn't, I'm going to kill you. Uh, then finally, the last scene, verse 22, he's now back in Israel. He's come back from the campaign, 
Verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, but the Lord, he will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings from the Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them to you. And they spread out a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. The weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels, or around 42 pounds of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it, and he put it in his city in Afra, in all Israel, Hoard after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Now this last paragraph actually starts off quite well when the you know the, the people of Israel say, Hey, we want you to we want you to rule over us. Like we've we see that you you've you've rescued us. Not only you, but your sons, when you die, your son will rule over us. And then when he dies, we'll have his son rule over us as well. We want to honor you. And, of course, Gideon has that wonderful line. No, 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 I'm not going to rule over you. My son's not going to rule over you, but Yahweh. Yahweh will rule over you. And then what happens, though? He makes this ephod, which is for a priest. Uh, either it's... it's uh, it's meant to be a memorial, that he's actually doing it out of a good heart in that sense, like just trying to remember how God spoke to him and, and led him to free Israel. Uh, or, at worst, uh, he actually is building an altar uh, that he's not supposed to be building. Either way, that became the downfall, again, for Israel. And you just go, what in the world happened? How did, how did that happen? How did we go from chapter 6 and 7 to this man in chapter 8? Now, let's just reflect on this uh, chapter then here. Um, if I were to ask you, how, how is the Lord portrayed, God portrayed, um, in this chapter? Again, chapters 6 and 7, we see that God is very merciful towards Gideon, powerful. What word or phrase could you use to describe God in this chapter? You might actually say, He's missing. He actually only shows up three times throughout the chapter, and it's always just from the lips of Gideon. And it actually might be the author's way of trying to hint at you right off the bat that though all you know, though Gideon speaks about Yahweh three times, his actions are actually not being guided by Yahweh. I mean, God was very active in chapter 6 and 7. He's, he's coming to Gideon quite regularly and guiding him, speaking with him. And now all of, all of a sudden he's out of the picture. Looks like Gideon has gone rogue. And his plan now is not the plans of what God is calling him to do. He's on his own. And God is not condoning what, uh, what he is doing here. How would you describe Gideon in this passage what word or phrase could you use to describe Gideon? 
I don't know, I, I have quite a long list of ways that I was trying to, de to describe him. I had him, uh, one, one way I went with it was he seemed well-intentioned at times. If I just take at face value what he was doing when he says, I will not rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you. Um, and in making this ephod, if I just take it at, you know, maybe he's just trying to create a memorial. He's not trying to do something other. Um, if I just take that at face value, maybe he's well-intentioned. Nonetheless, you'll see in the next section, he calls uh, one of the names of his, one of his sons is Abimelech, which means my dad is king. So that, that's kind of backwards. But nonetheless, at face value, he seems like he might be well-intentioned. I also have that he seems wise in this passage. I mean, he's done some wise military acts, uh, going around the cities and attacking Zeba and Zamuna in, a, in the backwards sort of way. He also, the way he calms down the Ephraimites, that, that's, that's a wise, that's right out of Proverbs, a wise way to live, right? A soft answer turns away wrath. So I, I think there's some wisdom in what he is doing. I, I also, I, I don't know if this is going on. I put, he seems like a... a a hurt man, or a, a, maybe even a bitter man, the way he uh, seems to respond to the people of Sukkoth and Penuel. Uh, and even, after, even though he was probably gone for a couple days and he comes back and he still wants to teach them a lesson. Uh, the way that he's, he talks about, uh, I mean, most, it seems like, would agree that what he's doing here with Zeba and Zamuna was not ordained by God. The way he even says that, look, as the Lord lives, if you had let my brother live, I wouldn't kill you. But since you killed him, you're done. So there might be very well bitterness going on in him. Don't know. Uh, most would agree that there's, there's, you could describe him as vengeful here. He's out for vengeance. He's going to make sure uh, he pays it out rather than leaving it to the Lord. He's going to put punishment out, even against his own fellow Israelites. You could describe him as merciless. You, you could say he's forgetful of God's grace at best, forgetful of God's mercy at best, and blind to it at worst. Now again, you have to read this as one whole narrative. Chapters 6 and 7, where he has been again and again, given mercy from God, grace from God. And now, the men of Sukkoth and Penuel struggle for one moment. I'm going to flail your flesh, buddy. Like, what is that? He's either totally forgetful of how, how gracious God is with him, or he's totally blind to it. I mean, he is very much acting right now in the way that that parable, Matthew 18, the parable of the unforg unforgiving servant. You remember that one that Jesus tells? He's, he's talking about, Jesus talking about uh, forgiving a brother who's sinned against you and what church discipline looks like if you need to do that. But then Peter comes back and he says, okay, well, Jesus, how many times do we need to forgive someone, though, for real? Like, if someone sins against me, how many times should I forgive them? How about seven times? And Peter, is, Peter thinks he's raising the bar quite high. Like, seven times, it's a I mean, could you imagine somebody doing the same thing to you seven times? And every time he come, they come back, he or she comes back and repents, you... You are required to forgive him. That's a lot. Doing it three times is hard. And Jesus, remember, then raises the bar and he says, no, Peter, not seven times, like 70 times seven or 77, depending on how you translate that. The idea is like, Peter, there, there's no end to this. And then he gives this parable of a king who, who was going to demand payments from people that were indebted to him. 
and he comes to this man who owes him, uh, as the numbers would be, 200,000 years of wages is the lump sum of money that he would owe him. Which in our, as I did a calculation uh, to that, uh, if, if you said 50,000 is a yearly salary, or an average yearly salary, times 200,000 uh, years, that would be $10 trillion, okay, in our monetary uh, setting. So as this servant owes $10 trillion to the king, and he pleads for mercy, and he even says, I'll pay you back, which is a, a foolish statement, right? And the king says, no, I, I forgive you of your debt. It's wiped clean. And then he goes back out to, into the marketplace, and there's someone that owes him 100 days worth of salary. There's one-third of 50000 right? Fifteen, seventeen thousand, 17000 And he demands payment and puts him in jail until he can pay him back. Remember that parable here? And Jesus says, look, if that's the way you're going to treat people, you will have no forgiveness. Because you forget how, just how much you've been forgiven. $10 trillion has been your debt to the king. Now you can turn around and forgive other people. It seems that uh, Gideon is doing the exact opposite here. Receives the mercy of God and has no mercy to give out to anyone. So actually, I just sum it up and I say, you know, I, this is how I would describe uh, Gideon. I would just, just simply describe him as messy. He's a messy man. He's a divided man. He's disturbing. Yeah? I mean, one minute he can act like he really trusts Yahweh, and the next minute he's building an ephod and whoring after it. One minute he's receiving mercy, and the next minute he's cruel to others. He's a messy man. So I actually think you could sum up the whole of Gideon's narrative that God delivers, God mercifully delivers through weak and messy faith. God delivers through weak and messy faith. And that, that's good news. That is very good news. Second Timothy, uh, Paul says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God would be complete, equipped for every good work. And so I ask myself, how does this passage actually teach me? How does it equip me? How does it reprove me and train me for righteousness? A passage like Judges 8. How does it make me like a tree planted by streams of water, as Psalm says the word does? Here's three ways, and then we'll wrap up. How I think this passage actually equips us for life, to train us in righteousness. Uh, what I think Judges 8 actually should do uh, the first thing is to sober us. It's to sober the messiness of God's people. We are messy people, and we should be sobered by it. That Judges chapter 8 should be a mirror for us. The message of Ch Judges chapter 8 should not be like, look, don't be like Gideon. Look how bad he was. No, the message is it's meant to be a little bit more like a mirror. You're just like him. You're just like this man that's divided, that's messy, that's disturbing. I mean, just, just think how, how many times that you, you demand to be treated a certain way from someone, and then you turn around and don't do the same thing to other people. And we can think about this in easy ways, right? Just think about when you drive. 
I mean, right? You, you know, you cut someone off because you're, you're distracted on, on, on action. It's, it's an accident, and you, you looked here at first, and then you were paying attention, and you forgot to look back or did, just didn't see him, and, and you realize you cut them off, and they, they're honking their horn, they're flipping the finger at you, and they're yelling at you, and you're like, dude, I'm just, seriously, I was just, just take it easy. I was, it was just a mistake. And it can be 30 seconds later, you go down a different aisle of the parking lot and somebody's not paying attention, they're drinking their coffee, looking at their phone, and they cut you off. What's wrong with you? Pay attention. Right? We do this all the time. You can go into the grocery store and someone's rude and they're just like, they're checking out your, your groceries and they're just not kind. You're like, what's wrong with these? Like, that was just, you go home and you talk about it. Man, this this. Person, this this guy at the grocery—he was just rude. Like, and yet sometimes you're the same way, right? I mean, you're just rude to people sometimes. You're angry too. <laughs> we we demand people to be patient with us, and yet we have no patience for other people. We de- we demand people to assume the best of our text messages. Right? Don't read into them. And yet, we read into people's text messages. We, we demand people to not gossip about us, because that's really hurtful towards us. And yet, how easy it is to have slanderous things come out of our mouth. I mean, we are just like Gideon. We receive so much mercy from God, and yet we turn around and expect everyone to treat us as we demand to be treated. So this, I think this passage should show, sober us. This is, the, this is the, what God's people look like. We are messy, messy people. But second uh, is that we should marvel that God uses messy people. I mean, it's an amazing thing that this man is in Hebrews chapter 11, that he's actually held up as a, a hero of the faith Gideon, this messy fool. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. This happens throughout Scripture. I mean, if you just start going through some of the people that God uses through Scripture and just think about their lifestyle, God does not hide their sin and their brokenness intentionally. Noah, I mean, he, out of eight people, got to go through the flood, or out of the whole world, him and his family. What's the first scene that happens right after the flood? Dude gets drunk and one of his sons gets cursed because of it. That's who Noah is. Abraham gets a promise uh, and he leaves his, his, his land faithfully following God. God brings him to the land. Genesis chapter 12. What's the next scene? There's a famine in the land, so Abraham starts to go down towards Egypt. He's scared, uh, so he gives his wife away after God had promised that he's going to have a nation through his wife. Who is that guy? Jacob. You know, got 12 sons, the tribe of Israel. A deceiver, a trickster. David, a man after God's own heart. We all know what happened there. Right? It's, and it's not just Bathsheba. It's not just Uriah, but if you read the story, he sends Uriah out to the front line with other soldiers. So there's perhaps eight, 
a dozen, 20 families getting letters home that your dad's not coming home because of the king? And that's the man after God's own heart that was given a, a promise to have a, a child to come through him that would be a king over all the world? Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, ends up building altars to false gods later in his life. Uh, one of my favorite passages, actually, uh, from Second Peter, uh, reads about this, about Lot. He says, now, if God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the people, for that man's, uh, what is it, that righteous man's heart was being tormented day after day. Three times in the passage, he calls Lot righteous. He's a righteous man, righteous Lot, righteous man, righteous heart, righteous soul. You read the, the, the book of Genesis, and you read about Lot, and you think, righteous Lot? What? Are you <laughs> Have you read the story, Peter? And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing that Peter's doing for us because he's saying, yes, Lot is righteous not because of his own practical righteousness, but because of righteousness given to him from someone else. A righteousness that's given by faith that God would come into the life of someone so messy like that and declare them righteous, not on the basis of them, but on the basis of another. Because Lot looked forward, we look back to the death, burial, and resurrection of the perfect, eternal Son of God who died in the place of sinners so that we actually would receive the righteousness of God. So that, yes, messy though we are, yet God can still use messy people like us. And the wonderful thing about Judges chapter 8, then, uh, is, is to help us with that nagging voice. That nagging voice that says, yeah, but someone like you could not be used of God. Like, how could God pour grace through you? Those thoughts that go on in your head, the things that you've done in your past, your weaknesses, your frailties, there's no way. And at that point, we should hold up Judges 8 and say, yeah, actually, I'm way worse than Gideon. And God delights to use messy people. He delights to use weak people, broken people. Why? Because it exalts the mercy and grace of God. And so we, we need not hide, hide our messiness. We actually bring our messiness. And actually, that's what I, uh, my last point here is that uh, this helps us to, to be tenderhearted towards other people then, to actually extend mercy. The church is not meant to be a country club where we're all dressed nice and pretty and we all have it all together. It's more like a hospital. Like we are broken people coming for repair, and we're, we're going to do the surgery. Because we're not, we're not just okay. Somebody comes in with an open wound. We don't just leave it. We actually do the surgery. But we don't have to hide it. But we can do it with mercy and grace and tenderness. We receive mercy so that we can give mercy out to others. Well, with that, uh, we will turn towards the Lord's Supper uh, due to time. Uh, so if, uh, if you are here and are a follower of Christ... Uh, the Lord's table is open to you. And the elements this morning remind us that as we partake of what pictures the broken body of Jesus and his blood poured out, let it remind us that our sin is that bad. It is that bad that the Son of God had to die in your place. And let it be a reminder to us 
that the payment is that complete. This is not the blood and the body of just some random old person that we think about, but the blood and, and body of the broken eternal Son of God shed for us, and the payment is finished. So if you're a follower of Christ this morning, we invite you to the table, um, provided you're walking in repentant faith before God. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, we ask you not to partake of uh, the Lord's table. Uh, or if you're here this morning and you profess faith in Christ but are not walking in uh, repentant faith, we ask that you not participate. But if you could come forward and into the middle part of the aisle and then circle back and grab the elements and then we'll partake together. Brothers and sisters, let us remember our sin is this bad. That it, it required the death of another for us to be brought back to God. But thanks be to Christ. Well, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you.